0: G'day everybody, Sam Marwood here from Cultivate Farms. Uh, This is a Country Hour episode uh, that we had the pleasure of being involved in, so it's myself uh, being interviewed in WA Country Hour and the whole session is about how do you make it possible for young people to own a farm and uh, retiring farmers to step back and back the next generation. Such a great uh, setup uh, they had interviews loaded uh, and uh, we just answered uh, well, I just answered questions that came in from the public and it was just really exciting to be a part of great to see this sort of discussion happening with the ABC so uh, listen along, please let us know your thoughts uh, and let's get you farming <music>
1: Great to be with you. My name's Bridget Fitzgerald. You're listening to The Country Hour. Today we're going to take a look at a situation facing many Australian farmers. What to do if you're nearing retirement, but you don't have kids who want to take over the farm. One obvious option is to sell, if you can. But I'm wondering, would you be prepared to go into some sort of business arrangement with a young person or a young family that aren't your own children? Shortly, we're going to hear a new matchmaking service that hopes to put aspiring farmers in touch with retiring farmers and investors. First, let's meet Alan Jones. He farms at Muck and in WA's north-eastern belt. Alan and his wife, Mary, have about 7,000 arable hectares and produce mainly wheat and sheep. They usually run a flock of about 4,500 but this year, due to the dry conditions, they're down to 1,900. And Alan is starting to slow down.
2: Well, I've been farming for 59 years, and uh, probably, uh, as far as farming goes, we're in, uh, like, uh, in football terms, we're probably in the fourth quarter and then time on.
3: <laughs> You're nearing retirement, would you say?
2: Yes, yeah. Well, I'm not sure how we're going to go there, but uh, uh, we're getting that way.
3: What would you like to do?
2: Go to the city and spend more time with our grandchildren down there, I presume.
3: And is it an option to sell up?
2: Well, it depends uh, whether the grandson takes it on or not. See where he goes first.
3: So do none of the kids want to take on the farm at all?
2: My son took over, actually. Uh, 2004 and he and his wife farmed for eight years and I sort of just help, helped out but then they decided to go down the bustle and he's a mechanic now so uh, uh, he's happy where he is so uh, when they left we started farming again in fact I've enjoyed it didn't know whether I would but uh, yeah, I still enjoy it.
3: So you left the farm or you left being the main farmer and you, you returned at what age?
2: I didn't leave, actually. I just did... became the uh, the worker. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you took over the reins again at, at what age?
2: Well, I would have been 69, I suppose.
3: And how old are you now, did you say? 74. So 74. It must be pretty tiring if you're running 4,500 sheep, and particularly this year, there uh, must be a bit of hand-feeding going on.
2: The sheep side of it, not too bad, really. You know, I get help at seeding time. I've had a couple of good helpers the last couple of years so uh, sort of lightened the load a bit.
3: Have you tried to sell in the past?
2: We put the farm on the market uh, a week before the financial crisis and that uh, sort of uh, soon fell in a hole and that turned up.
3: Did you have any possible buyers at that stage?
2: Uh, We had one or two uh, that were a bit interested but then Sort of with the financial crisis, everything went quiet there, so we never worried about it again after that.
3: Has there been any interest from your neighbours?
2: Not really. Uh, they probably would might like a little bit of it, but I uh, sort of wanted to hold the whole lot together for the time being. If none of the family want to take it on, I don't want to stick around for too long.
3: Because it must be getting difficult to farm when, you, when you're 74 and you're the main guy running it.
2: It's OK if you've got good help.
3: Yeah. No. Alan, what do you think you're going to do if your grandchildren and your kids uh, don't end up going back onto the farm and taking over the reins? What do you think you and Mary will do?
2: Well, I suppose if we can't sell the whole lot, we'd, we'd probably sell pieces off. Uh, I think we could do that. We want to meet the market, but uh, I suppose time will come when we'll have to consider that.
3: When do you reckon that time will be?
2: Oh. <laughs> Mary's looking at me now, <laughs> but <laughs> she probably says 12 months. I'll probably say five years. <laughs>
3: it's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, I feel for you. It's, uh, it's a tough situation to be in, particularly this year. How would you rank this year, Alan?
2: Be the worst start we've ever had.
3: The worst ever.
2: No, I think so. Yeah.
3: So would it be the driest March, April, May, June, July you've had?
2: I think so. Yeah. We've we've had we've had a dry a June, drier than this year actually, but we came out of it all right. That was in two thousand and one. We get our bad years, but we get our good ones. So you got to look at the long term.
1: Alan Jones runs a farm with his wife Mary, twenty five kilometers east of Muckinburden in the northeastern wheat belt, so about three and a half hours drive northeast of Perth. And Alan told Richard Hudson that unfortunately this year was so dry he only planted about nine hundred hectares on his farm, but what he was hoping for was about two thousand. On our WA Country our Facebook page, we're asking for your suggestions on what people like Alan could do when you don't have any kids who do want to take over the farm and when you're in that fourth quarter with time on. In following on with that analogy, Glenn has suggested on Facebook that Alan should go to the draft or rookie list. But who are those rookies? This situation that Alan and Mary have found themselves in is so common. Please send me a text on zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Does that reflect your situation or perhaps that of your family or friends or neighbours? Do you want to hand over the farm? Do you want to maybe sell, but you don't have any children or grandchildren who can take over and your options to sell? Well, like Alan just said there, they might be limited. Zero double four eight nine double two six. You can let me know. A couple of more of your comments on Facebook. Paul says to Alan, sell up and retire, mate. And Cassandra says, why not find a local family who have a good work ethic but can't afford to buy and aren't going to inherit anything and gift it to them? Cassandra says she'd kill for the opportunity for her family to own and work their own farm, but she's got no chance of inheriting four kids, one income, and they're at an age that if they don't have one now, they probably never will. This is exactly the problem that Sam Marwood wants to fix. Sam's the co-founder of what's been called a matchmaking service to pair up farmers looking to retire with aspiring farmers. It's called Cultivate Farms, and the idea is to find 100 retiring farmers to be part of a succession planning scheme that instead of planning succession within families matches these farmers with people that they may have never met before but desperately want to farm and it's just won a national regional australia institute competition known as Lightbulb moments sam marwood thank you so much for joining us all the way from albury in new south wales here on the country hour today
0: pleasure pleasure bridget great to be here
1: and sam we will run through some of the specifics about your idea in this scheme very soon but first of all what kind of solution would you offer to Alan Jones, who we just heard from there?
0: Well, I think he's got the right thought process it's um, it's a beautiful thing to be able to hand it down to to family and um, that should definitely be your first thought, but uh, in his case it doesn't look like that's going to to work so we would uh, we would look to our uh, list of aspiring farmers who have uh, dreams to run farms similar to what Alan is running. Um, And we'd love to be able to, uh, to match him up and have conversations with those aspiring farmers to see which would be a good match.
1: So Alan has attempted to sell, as you just heard there, and granted it wasn't a great time, it was amid the global financial crisis, but he is on quite marginal country and as he said, this year in particular is very dry. How do you make that attractive to an aspiring farmer, even if they have all the passion in the world? Um, because, as Alan just says himself, they might be looking for something that's just simply a higher rainfall region.
0: Well, that's right. I think we'd be relying on on experts to, to help us on any farm across Australia. We want to make sure that we're more matching people onto farms that are are going to be profitable um, and so we'd be looking to experts in that region to to sit down with Alan and the aspiring farmer and think about well how can we how can we de-risk this and how do we how do we change our farming practices so that if there are uh, low rainfall seasons uh, that we can still make this a profitable enter- enterprise.
1: And then how do you with that word profit in mind Alan's saying that he's got no desire to stay there on the farm, but um, he and his wife really do want to move to town so they can be with their grandchildren, as I'm sure would be echoed amongst a lot of their farming community. How would he then finance that if you if did by chance find someone who wanted to take over?
0: There could be many arrangements. One could be vendor finance. So then Alan probably needs a bit of cash to be able to buy a house in town. So we'd we'd be looking to see if the aspiring farmer had a little bit. And most of the farmers we're talking to do have some uh, equity available. Um, so vendor finance is one. And another one would be uh, getting an investor in, and that investor could be another local uh, community member, someone who themselves is retired from farming who wants to be able to support uh, young people getting onto into the. Into the bush, so there are various ways of doing it, but it's around freeing up that cash to give Alan to the ability to step back uh, and and do what he wants to in retirement, uh, and supporting that young person on.
1: We've got a comment on Facebook from a Deb who's mentioned that exact thing, saying vendor finance would leave the assets in the hands of the farmers. Can you just explain a little bit more about what vendor finances are?
0: Yeah, and they used to be very popular. Uh, I understand early mid 1900s uh, pretty much it's it's about uh, an individual being the bank so you take out a mortgage uh, with the vendor uh, and you'd pay pay it back uh, over a set amount of time which could be around 20 years um, but instead of uh, going to the bank for for the funding you go straight to the vendor to um, to finance the, the eventual purchase of the property
1: and alternatively you it- could this kind of system work if, by chance, Alan and Mary wanted to stay on their in their house on the property?
0: Absolutely, we think that's a great option. I think as long as there's another house for the aspiring farmer, but uh, we love the idea of, of people staying connected to you know that that dirt that they've been working on for so many years, uh, and to one day walk away, I think is a really, uh, really sad thing. So we love the idea that these retiring farmers can either stay on the farm or stay. Uh, connected through ownership and, and, and mentoring uh, on these farms, we think it's a, it's a really great thing.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour. Sam Marwood joins me today. He's, he and his co-founders have just won a national prize for their group, company, succession planning scheme. You might call it Cultivating Farms, Cultivate Farms, I should say. Now, Sam, we have jumped straight to the how. How do we fix this problem? I'd like to take a look at the why. What problem have you identified here?
0: access to capital. I think that's the number one and it's the, I think I even knew this when I was age eight when my uh, mum and dad said they weren't giving me the farm. I knew straight away I would not be able to afford to buy a farm so I went off and, and did something something else. So the idea that we could eliminate that biggest barrier to entry for, for anybody uh, to become a farmer just sounded very, very exciting. Um, and so that's the focus. It's how do you get people who want to be farmers uh, who don't have the money match them with people who have the farm and, and maybe have the, the cash to be able to support them and, Uh, and set up a a great relationship to run uh, profitable and uh, enjoyable farms.
1: And so what happens to those people who do want to be farmers but don't have that capital? What are they doing now?
0: (laughs) Everything else other than their their farming passion. So there's people working in cities or working other jobs or agronomists um, or or teachers or or any other profession. It it seems like um, people are following um, just the practical uh, route to uh, living life, which is they need a job, they need to be able to make money and um, farm ownership uh, is just not on that uh, in that uh, realm of areas that they can actually take on so they won't go off and do other things. But we've spoken to hundreds of, of aspiring farmers who would quit their job tomorrow uh, to become a farmer, but uh, that capital is the thing that's holding them back.
1: And why do you think that is such a big problem, that they're not making that jump? They might be living in regional communities, they might be you know, working on farms, but not making that, that extra leap to actually running their own farm?
0: It, I think we've got the mindset of uh, we have to own the whole thing ourselves. So a lot of them uh, are saying, well, I've got to save up. Uh, and it takes a while to save uh, for a couple of million dollar farm uh, for the deposit, so 40% deposit, uh, and on an average wage, that's going to take many years. So it's it's just uh, the realities that they're running into is that it's 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 difficult to save unless you're in a very wealthy uh, in a very wealthy job or uh, uh, or you win lotto. Um, the other things holding them back.
1: And we—it's obviously an individual issue for both the retiring farmers and the people who are aspiring to own their own farms. But when we see, you know, farms maybe getting bigger, maybe a neighbour buys out their their retiring neighbours, what actually happens to those rural communities in those situations?
0: Yeah, the the footy team um, is harder to uh, field a team every week. It's uh, we're, we're losing those those people who are, are the glue of the community and. Um, we love the idea that we could start reversing that trend, that um, you don't just have to look to your next door neighbor to, to sell the farm. Um, you can look to a new generation of people to come in and, and, uh, and run the farm and um, bring, their, bring their family, bring their friends along and, and, and grow the community um, rather than necessarily um, seeing farms get bigger and bigger.
1: On the text line zero double four eight nine double two six zero four, Harley has sent in a text to say there are always young, driven, motivated people out there looking for an opportunity. Harley thinks we just have to find them, which I guess is where you come in there, Sam.
2: That's right.
1: Um, let's take a look at another case study here in WA. Quite a different situation to Alan and Mary. Edgar Horta and his family are orchardists in Bailing up in the southwest of the state and Sam in case you don't know that area it's quite fertile country big fruit growing area it's hilly high rainfall and but it's also an increasingly popular place for lifestyle blocks and hobby farms that kind of thing now Edgar and his wife they want to retire to Bunbury regional city Um, I'll just get your thoughts on what Edgar has to say in a few minutes Sam our reporter Tyne Logan was out at Edgar's place yesterday and asked him what his options are
4: well, the, the options were to, to try and sell the property as a going concern or to look at the alternatives of subdivision. I had had a bit of experience with subdivision. It was quite clear that we would not get good value for the property where it was trying to sell it as a whole. Then had a look at um, exploring all the alternatives that we could to add value to the property
5: and so why couldn't why couldn't you sell it as a whole? Why couldn't you get that that value?
4: Uh, mainly because there was a lot of com- uh, competing interest for land around the area um, rightly or wrongly, there were properties that were being subdivided individual titles were being sold off so the the per acre value really gave w- would give no economic return to anyone looking at a grazing enterprise so it would have to be something fairly intensive and it, it was really that uh, to sell it in, in as a whole, we would never have got the value that we could buy. And there's no guarantee with subdivision either, and it's not easy, but we felt it was well worth the effort of going through that process.
5: So how many plots did you end up breaking it into, or are you going to? Uh,
4: well, we did start with a rural residential subdivision on a property we bought near town. Um, so there, there were there were smaller blocks there, and on the... The rest of the land which we bought we we split that into twelve into twelve lots, 12 bigger lots, and there were twenty three small lots in the subdivision.
5: And how how big were they?
4: The rural residential, they were two acres and there were a couple of five acre blocks. The others that we've got, they're hundred acres and we do have a couple of forty acre blocks.
5: So if you've been doing this over the last twelve years, how hard has it been to sell them, even just as smaller hobby farm type plots?
4: Ten years ago, it was very easy. The market has progressively weakened um, over a period of time, but we've sold we've sold five, six of them now. Really, it, the price per acre is still is still very attractive, and we certainly would not get that yield if it was if it had been sold as a, as a whole
5: and is the fact that you're in bailing up where there there is more hobby farms and there is more um orchard type style farms you know is that something that definitely worked in the favor of subdivision would you have done it if you were up north in a completely different landscape
4: don't think it would have worked i know um it's and i think this is why i not that i i don't get a huge amount of satisfaction out of this because there's a lot of very good country down there that Had there never been subdivision, I think possibly, and land values had stabilised at a much lower level, there possibly would still be more farming activity down there. But because it it had got started, there was a demand for land, uh, um, the opportunity was there. And as I said, as much as it certainly wouldn't have been my ambition when we first started down there, certainly that has been the best outcome we could get.
5: Now, these have all been outright sales, I, I assume, yes. but there is a new program th- that works at hooking young farmers up who, who don't have a farm property and don't have the capital with retiring farmers who don't have the children to pass it on to. The idea is it could work in multiple different ways, You know whether it's a slow transition passing the farm on or if it's an investor comes into it. Is that something that you would be open to?
4: No, we've never had to consider that and I, I really think it, it probably wouldn't work because it would be, as I said, it would be financially flawed from the beginning with the amount that's invested in land and what they could expect to get off it unless they wanted to do something very intensive. Uh, it, it really doesn't lend itself to a good economic base for young farmers to come in on that sort of that sort of land.
5: Yeah, OK, so even if the young farmer was super keen to get into the orchard side of the business
4: haven't had to consider it i well it's very hard to find anybody who wants to do that so i no, i haven't had to consider that i think if if there was a proposal there i'd be prepared to look at it but it's something that with this stage we haven't had to consider
5: as a farmer yourself how important do you think it is that young farmers are given the opportunity to come onto farms no matter what their background is
4: Oh, I, th- I think uh, there's probably a greater interest in agriculture now than there ever has been. Big change, I believe, is that they don't have to own farmland to be involved in agriculture. There are there are a lot of a lot of um, very well paid positions that would be very satisfying for young people who do want to participate in in agriculture. Um, no, I, I think it's increasingly difficult to get the capital to come in, but there are certainly some management positions. And permission, uh, uh, positions with agricultural companies that uh, would certainly get them out there involved in agriculture if that's what they wanted.
1: That's bailing up fruit grower Edgar Horta speaking with Tyne Logan. You're listening to The Country Hour. I'm Bridget Fitzgerald, and my guest is Sam Marwood. He's one of the people behind this matchmaking scheme program that pairs retiring and aspiring farmers together it's what Tyne was just asking Edgar about towards the end of that interview and on that last point Edgar made about jobs in agriculture as opposed to being the farmer you'll hear from two aspiring farmers tomorrow on the country hour about why they want to be farmers as opposed to just the managers an important distinction for them And Sam, Edgar made a valid point there uh, that subdivision was the best way for him to go financially. Do you think that with Cultivate Farms you're asking people to be too altruistic by saying, you know, hey, don't choose the best financial decision, choose the right decision, in inverted commas?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, he's had so many great points. Uh, I think, first and foremost, we want to put people onto farms that actually make money. We're not here uh, to put people into terrible situations. So I think in Edgar's case, from his point of view, he's got to make a good return um, and 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 jump onto the opportunities that are in front of him. So in in this case, if we did get an aspiring farmer onto these properties, it would be around, well, how do you actually... Um, generate a return. Um, are there some uh, different ways of doing it? And uh, if the answer is no, then it'd be then we'd be looking at well, uh, is Edgar doing this? Um, does he want to do this to support his community? Which the realities might be that he, he might need to uh, sell for a, for a lower price to be able to support his community. But that's a very big ask. So first and foremost, we're after profitable farms, um, and we're still looking for farms that are, are priced at the range that you can make a return return on
1: and i know it it is difficult because it's case by case and that's obviously what you're working from but have you looked at you know models and situations where that it has been you know the most financially uh, viable decision to make and you know and good for the retiring and aspiring farmers as well that this might model has worked in a good financial sense
0: yeah uh, yes so we've got and we're building up a, a database of of farm models to understand um how in each scenario uh, and every, anywhere across Australia, uh, how you can actually make a return. So um, there's ways and means, but obviously there's a limit to, to every uh, every farm situation depending on the land price and, and what you can sell your produce for. But um, again, this is just about what we're trying to advocate is this is about conversations, getting people around the table, discussing the future of their farm, the future of their community and, and how they can best arrange things to to ensure it's a thriving community with profitable farms.
1: And uh, have you had any um, case studies so far?
0: Yeah, so Tim and Tegan Hicks are the co-founders and uh, the original idea generators f- for this. And um, we're just out there on their 1,000 acres uh, just north of Albury in New South Wales, which is where we live. Um, so it's a lease arrangement, um, but it's right on the hume. It's an amazing property, and, and we wouldn't have had this opportunity without doing what we're doing with the Coldweight farms. But we've got a, a couple of farms we're looking at in WA at the moment, and, and farms nearly in every state across Australia. We're just uh, getting the discussions going with retiring farmers and even just farms off the market as well. So things are starting to heat up and hopefully by the end of the year we'll have a number of um, farms, farms and farmers matched.
1: And Sam, stay with us because um, after we get the news headlines and the weather, uh, we will talk about uh, possible investors. That's another part that we haven't quite touched on yet. It's not just about the farmers leaving and those wanting to come in, but uh, those who hopefully could invest as well. And on the text line four 0448- eight. Nine double two six zero four. This isn't really a question for you, Sam, but more of a comment. Great idea, but schooling is the biggest problem for this person on the text line. They say boarding is so expensive, uh, but they would go farming tomorrow if that wasn't such a big issue. I won't, I won't ask you to fix that huge infrastructure problem there, Sam, but we'll um, come back to you in a couple of minutes. On the Country Hour, we are talking today about this new scheme called Cultivate Farms. It's just won a national award and the whole idea is to pair up retiring farmers with uh, those who can't afford the capital to start farming themselves, see whether they could be paired together. On the text line two604 Jacko has texted in to say, this is a long overdue idea. I've given up on owning my own farm and have made peace with my lot in life to be the farm worker. Thank you for your input there. If you've got something to add to the conversation, 0448 604 We will continue talking about it. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. My name's Bridget Fitzgerald and Sam Marwood is my guest today. He and his co-founders have just won a national prize for a succession planning program scheme. Matchmaking service, it's also been referred to. Cultivate farms, it's where they pair up retiring farmers with aspiring farmers. But then there's also the question of investment. Sam, that's obviously a key component of your matchmaking model and without investors, well, I guess it's probably a bit of a struggle to convince retiring farmers to consider anything with young farmers involved who aren't their kids And as you would know, super funds have been reluctant to invest in the agricultural sector after failed managed investment schemes burnt both investors and farmers in the early 2000s. I'm not sure if you would have looked through or seen a recent report by the Industry Super Australia. It's a research and advocacy body for industry super funds, and it's detailed a report and it maps out opportunities and challenges associated with investment in agriculture in Australia. Richard Taylor is a New South Wales farmer who is also the founder of a farm management company that works with private and institutional investors. Sam, I'll just get you to have a listen to a couple of minutes of this. Richard thinks that it's a landmark report that could change a few minds in the super industry.
6: Yeah, well, I think the report makes the case that investment in ag is actually a very solid investment and probably particularly as we look as though we're moving into a lower return environment. And long-term capital gain on farmland has been, you know, 6% or better. So that represents a good return. And the operating return is very dependent on management. And so if you look at ABARES figures, the average return from broadacre farms is only sort of 1% to 3%. So it's pretty modest, but the good operators are doing 5 to 7%. So the question is whether institutions can capture that. And and corporate ag's challenge in the past has always been trying to match the best family operations, which have always set the, really set the standard in agriculture.
3: Well, what could change to help um, super funds and other people that are looking to invest in agriculture to highlight those farmers that are making gains of more than 6% and the family farms that that um, you say are, are doing much better than than the average?
6: Well, Josh, I think it it all comes down to management. I mean, there's a couple of different models for um, the superannuation industry. One, which interestingly, um, the US pension fund has taken up, is to buy agricultural farmland and actually lease it out to good operators. Um, And Westchester, who manages them for a big... The teachers' pension fund in the US has invested about a billion dollars in Australian agriculture, and they're leasing pretty well all that land to good local operators. Um, And in that way, they take all the risk out themselves.
3: Do you think that there's a concern that um, the foreign investors may be first in and and quick to snap up some of the um, profitable investment in agriculture while some of the Australian super funds are holding back at the moment?
6: Well, I think that was one of the really interesting things about the report, Josh. The report really lamented the fact that while the Australian superannuation and other in- institutional investors were not not operating in ag it was leaving the door wide open for foreign investment in ag i wouldn't want to be anti foreign investment but i i think you know we need a balance there too and i and i don't think any anyone thinks it would be good for australia for a high proportion of our land to go to foreigners at the moment about 13% of the land i think it says in the report in australia is owned by foreign interests that probably overstates it a bit because a lot of it's big Top end cattle properties. Like, I think they own about 30% of the Northern Territory.
1: That's Richard Taylor speaking with Josh Becker. And Sam Marwood, when we're talking about investors in your particular program, what kind of investors would you be looking at? Would it be some of these super funds?
0: Uh, Potentially the super funds. I think the issue with super funds is that they don't offer ownership. Um, That's just the straight up farm management. But we've found that there is this key component uh, to get the best people into farming, which is ownership. And so funds are just limited in that um, capacity. But uh, we are looking for uh, other sources of investors who are willing to share and and can uh, share that equity of, of the farm, which... Going back, to, going back to his point during uh, Richard's point there, um, that to get the best people um, that he's saying that we need, it is it is key that they have ownership.
1: So, what kinds of investors have you been looking at?
0: They really range. So I think I mentioned before that we love the idea that local community members can be investors into farms. And there's examples of that all over Australia, a great one in Northwest Tasmania, uh, where eight members of a community owner dairy farm together. So looking to uh, local community members as investors, there's the standard high net worth in individuals all over Australia who are keen to get into agriculture. Um, there's the rise of equity, equity crowdfunding, so your consumers uh, can be a part of owning the farm with you, which we really think is exciting. Uh, and then there's the bank and, and also the retiring farmer themselves. So we'd love the idea that um, you don't have to raise as much capital uh, if the retiring farmer uh, retains a stake.
1: And how does this idea of yours differ from corporate farming? As you said, maybe differing from that super investment model where somebody comes in and manages
0: yeah so we we'll um support any farm arrangement which uh all parties are happy with so it could be that uh, someone uh, gets matched onto a farm that they're, they're just the manager and that's and that, that, if that's what they want that's fantastic um, but for us it's just about finding the best arrangement so everyone uh, wins and, and gets what they want so with the super fund arrangement is purely that uh, a fund owns a number of farms and they employ people to, to run them uh, which is great and there's lots of people who, who really enjoy that aspect of farming um, but what we're, we're finding is that uh, they, these young people, these aspiring farmers there's something about owning the land and, and the, the super funds just don't have that capacity to, to offer ownership
1: and Sam someone has just sent us a text in that says they just had a look at the website uh, of Cultivate Farms and uh, this person says it seems like a dodgy money grab 150 to $400 a year to register your interest in wanting to be a farmer with no guarantee of any chance of farming how would you respond to that person
0: yeah. So we've got to try and uh, monetize this to uh, open, keep our doors open. So we're looking to our aspiring farmers and saying, uh, well, no one's ever done this before. We're we're having a crack. Um, we need to build up relationships with investors. We need to find farm opportunities. We need to spend time finding these farm opportunities and, and getting out there and spreading the word. So um, we know it's a long-term play to get these people on to do farms. And, and a lot of people probably aren't even farm ready yet, but we want to be able to provide farm uh, ready opportunities, training, etc. Um, we're offering them memberships, discounted memberships, to loss of uh, opportunities uh, in the farming sector as well. So, um, yeah, they can definitely perceive it that way, but uh, we're here with great intent. Uh, we're trying to offer something that no one else is offering across the country and uh, we're hopeful that we're onto a winner here.
1: Another one of our texts, Will thinks that this is a great concept. He and his wife aspire to farm in their own right, but their savings seem out of reach. Will says they've made a conscious decision uh, to work for progressive, profitable farmers to gain as much knowledge and skill as possible, but he wants to know how to get involved. There, Phil in Albany thinks that this is a great idea. He says he started from scratch by leasing, but ideally he wants to own a farm And he's trying to borrow now, but having a viable business, uh, he says he thinks the banks make it near impossible, which is, I'm sure, quite a common experience there. Sam, let's hear now from a farmer who does want to farm. Adam Coffey was a Northern Territory Nuffield Scholar last year, and all Adam's ever wanted is to be a pastoralist. He had the cattle, but recently he realised that it would have taken him a few hundred years to save enough money to buy his own station in Australia's north.
7: My wife Sid and I have only sort of recently um, been running our own business and existing cattle, etc., for the last five, six years. So I um, guess we're a small small entrant and um, obviously things are pretty big in the north, so um, we, we gave the tree pretty good shake, but we couldn't really find anything um, that was small enough and economical enough for us to take
6: on. Why do you think
4: you were struggling to find a, a place that you could buy into and um, get a foothold here in the Territory?
7: I think it's just the sheer size of things. You know, I, don't, I think it's that simple. Without pretty big financial backing, it's a real struggle.
4: And adjusting cattle long term was no longer an option for you.
7: Uh, it certainly got us to where we needed to be, but uh, we just felt that it's not a, it, it wasn't a sustainable sort of base for your business. Um, I guess in, in a certain, to a certain extent, it relies on somebody else's terms. So um, it's it's hard to sort of set concrete plans for the future. Uh,
4: what was it like making that decision to leave the territory?
7: Uh, pretty tough. Yeah, we've been in the in the north for the last 10, 11 years. We were over in the Kimberley, and then we moved across after a brief stint in Queensland. We came back up to the territory. So, um, yeah, it's um, I think we'll always look back on it as the best times of our lives, and it's been fantastic to us in terms of building our wealth, and and certainly kicking some goals in terms of our business. But um, so yeah, it was it was hard to leave. But uh, on the other hand, as I say, we we tried very hard to sort of find something suitable in the north, and and we just couldn't. So we looked elsewhere.
4: You sold your herd that you had up here. What was it like seeing all that that herd go?
7: Yeah, mixed feelings. I mean, we, a lot of our cattle were bought on the back of the um, the export ban, and when I mean, things were a bit down and out, so we bought pretty well, and, and and so we sold pretty well accordingly. Obviously, the market's pretty good at the moment, but um, yeah, yeah, still still a pretty hard decision to make. Um, we obviously looked at trucking cattle across uh, to the east, but um, yeah, the export market's staying along, so it's pretty hard argument when you're looking at a high value cattle up there and and, you know $150, $200 a head to get them across to where we need to get them so so we made the decision to um, sell a lot.
1: Nuffield scholar and former Northern Territory cattleman Adam Coffey speaking with Dan Fitzgerald about his struggle to own even a small station in Australia's north. He brought a small Uh, ex-tree plantation block between Rockhampton and Bundaberg in Queensland. He only moved there just a few months ago. Sam Marwood, what do you think when you hear about Adam's story there?
0: I get sad, I think. Um, And this is the reason why we've started Cultivate Farms, is that there are amazing, clever, dedicated people like Adam uh, out there busting and busting to get on their farm, doing what they can, building up their skills, building equity. Um, But then they hit that brick wall of reality is that, well, yeah, they have to save for another 30, 40, 50 years, uh, 100 years, uh, as you mentioned, uh, to even get on the farm, which is just unrealistic. So I get a bit sad and I I think it's a a big wake-up call to the whole agriculture industry. It's um, what are we doing um, to ensure that we are getting the best people like Adam onto farms across the country?
1: And we will uh, hear on the Country Hour tomorrow from some more aspiring farmers on the situations they are in currently and what they are hoping to do. Sam Marwood, thank you so much for joining us today on the Country Hour. It's been a really interesting discussion.
0: Thank you, Bridget. That's was great.
1: Sam Marwood, speaking to us there from Albury in New South Wales, where he's based. Uh, he and his uh, co-founders have just won a national prize for Cultivate Farms. They're trying to pair up in a matchmaking-like service retiring farmers and aspiring farmers, those who don't have the capital to own their own farms, but they want to. Thank you for your company this afternoon on the Country Hour. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. As it is always, a few more anonymous texts. Please remember to pop your name and a location on text when you can. Someone says, I've worked on farms most of my life at 57. It's too late for me, but I would have loved someone to help me the way that's been suggested on today's program. If I'd only been 10 years older, I may have been able to make do with a CP block. And another texter thinks that lifestyle-sized properties make much of the good land unviable. Very good point there. We will be talking about this on tomorrow's program again. You'll be hearing from a couple of aspiring farmers, those who want to get into farming but just simply don't have the capital. An interesting discussion. We'll see you again tomorrow at midday. It's one o'clock.